Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I knew I was ready to leave and there was this switch in my brain that just went, oh, hang on, just one last little plan B we might want to explore here. I said, well, what if I don't leave? Given that I'm prepared to give it all up, what if I give all of it up except for my existence and the stuff that I actually hold dear to me? And what if I start this whole journey again with just literally the clothes on my back? And seriously, from that point forward, my life shifted. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Gentle greetings, dear listeners. We're so excited about the guests we have for you today. We sure are. We have a fascinating and no-topic-off-limits conversation with the globally renowned Sarah Wilson. Sarah's achieved such great heights in multiple arenas. She's a former journalist and TV presenter. She's an author and activist and successful entrepreneur. Sarah wrote the New York Times bestsellers, I Quit Sugar, and First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which Mark Manson described as the best book on living with anxiety that he'd ever read. That's not all. Along with her latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, Sarah has been ranked as one of the top 200 influential authors in the world, and her online wellness I Quit Sugar program was taken by one and a half million people from around the world. These days, Sarah's a campaigner for the causes that matter, and in particular, the climate crisis. Her determination to motivate us all to do what we can is matched only by her research, her passion, and her own crusading life. Yes, she, you know, she's so remarkably authentic, and I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who walks the talk as authentically and vulnerably as Sarah does. Absolutely, you're so right. In this episode, you'll learn how Sarah's childhood explains so much about the leader she is today, how she completely reframed and values her anxiety, what happened when she was at her lowest ever point, how important hiking is to Sarah, and why 3.5% is such a magnificent and hopeful number. Now, in our conversation... As Sarah goes deep and vulnerable, we want to alert you that she talks about a time she had dark suicidal thoughts. If you think this might trigger you or someone listening with you, please take the appropriate care. Absolutely. Now, without further ado, enjoy this wild and precious episode with the crusading and inspiring Sarah Wilson. Sarah, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, both of you. We are so excited about this. And the way we start all of our conversations with our guests is to ask them, you know, if you were meeting someone for the first time, say at a dinner party, how would you describe to them what you do today? Oh, I guess it would be former journalist, author and climate motivator. That's what I'm called these days, a climate motivator. I like that. I hadn't heard that before. That's very cool. And look, I'm going to say straight up that you have had such an extraordinary and successful career. You know, listeners, Sarah's been editor of Cosmopolitan magazine at just 29 years of age. She hosted MasterChef Australia. She's been a multiple times New York Times bestselling author and built a globally successful wellness online business. I Quit Sugar, who hasn't heard of that, by the way, to your role today as, I was going to say, a climate crisis activist, but I really like climate crisis motivator. You know, I'm going to say up front, I don't think we can possibly do justice to everything that you've achieved. But, you know, if you had to sort of reflect on what's driven you to achieve the levels of success you have done in so many apparently different sort of and varied endeavors, what would you say that driver is for you? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a very kind of varied CV, so it's hard to pinpoint it down to one thing, but it's always been about connection. I have an absolute desire to connect. It might come from the fact I grew up in the country, the middle of nowhere. We had no access to other humans other than my five younger brothers and sister. And so I was always curious. I was always gazing outwards. I always wanted to know more about the rest of the world and I wanted to connect And as I came across my own troubles in life and I've battled anxiety all my life, I suppose there have been the forums for me to connect is through human pain and human despair and human confusion and a human desire to know what it's all about. So, yeah, it'd be my desire to know what it's all about is what has driven me. Oh, just a small question then, but (laughs) I I jest, of course. That is fascinating. And you mentioned, you know, your childhood and would love to just rewind back there for a moment. You know, from what I've read, in some ways your childhood was pretty unusual in terms of how, you know, your family lived in the countryside. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, by contemporary standards, certainly. But even when I was a kid, my brothers and my sister and I were regarded as slight oddities. So I lived outside Canberra, which is, you know, in Australia's capital city, which is sort of the area I'm describing was sort of mountains of aridness. Um, There was nothing out there but dirt and rocks and us and our goats, which we had for milk and meat. And mum and dad weren't hippies. I think people think it was sort of this idealised life of, you know, my parents being subsistence kind of operators but it really came about from them being quite poor so it was very basic out of necessity but it's really interesting all of my brothers and my sister and my parents we still live in a very similar way we haven't changed our ways we ride a bike everywhere all of us are advocates of minimalism no waste all of that kind of thing it never left us and it's because it makes sense. We we managed to get a lot of other stuff done as a result of not being caught up in consumerism and, and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was unique. A lot of the stuff that people grew up with, I just didn't have. I never went on school excursions. I've never been on a school camp. You know, we didn't do school sports. We didn't have new anything, no new clothes. Furniture was 
scraps of carpet that dad got from houses being torn down and everything was repurposed, everything, you know. So, yeah, but I suppose as kids we, we didn't really know better until we got into our teenage years. And what happened then? Did you sort of look at other people and start to compare yourself or not? Yeah, I became hypercritical. I became my parents' kind of life coaches, telling them exactly where they were going wrong and what they needed to do to get their act together, which is, I'm sure it annoyed them vastly. But yeah, I I started working at 11 and I had a business at 12, which earned a fair bit of money. And so I became known as money bags in the family and, um, (laughs) you know, paid for a few things. I managed to sort of, yeah, start saving some money and and therefore was able to leave home reasonably young because I became financially independent quite young. You mentioned that you have lived for most of your life with anxiety and also I think you have bipolar disorder as well. Mm -hmm. Looking back, how much were they present in your childhood? Oh, gosh, I describe it as an itch in some ways, this sort of frenzied internal itch. I remember it from when I was seven. Seven years of age is when I recall this feeling taking over my body and my mind. And so I used to have these strange sensations where I could rise above myself in a scenario to try to understand things. I analysed everything deeply, worried a lot about my family and did a lot of sort of stuff to try to keep them safe and on track. I was diagnosed with anxiety, childhood anxiety at 12. And bear in mind, the official diagnostic tool used here in Australia, the DSM, only classified anxiety as a disorder in 1980. So that was when I was, well, six. So it was all relatively new. And then, yeah, the various disorders and so on started to trickle in from there. My late teens, yeah, diagnosed with what was called manic depression back then at 21. And, yeah, sort of rolled through the various treatments as they came about and the various drugs as they came about. So, yeah, it, it was a big part of my life and then sort of from around my late 20s early 30s began a process of me piecing apart all of that and formulating my own storyline and that then became the framework for my career for everything that I do today. Oh I have to ask you you know how would you summarize your sort of storyline or the aspects of the storyline if not the actual detail depending on what you're comfortable Mm. sharing? Oh, no, that's okay. Well, I suppose I, and this sounds like exactly what a person with bipolar would say, but um, I used to say, I'm the sanest person I know. (laughs) (laughs) I had to analyse that deeply and honestly, constantly, to be able to make the decision that I did. And my decision was to go my own way and to reframe my anxiety through more of a philosophical and spiritual lens to broaden out and to go, what is the role of anxiety disorders? And the the, the disorders I had was bipolar and also obsessive compulsive disorder, both of which exist in the broader population, whether you're in Sydney, whether you're in Los Angeles, whether you're in the Amazon, wherever it might be, at around about 1.2 to 1.4% of the population. And, you know, I looked into it and a lot of evolutionary biologists have sort of speculated that it exists as a sort of almost an evolutionary quirk among a small number, the perfect number we assume for survival, to ensure that the human race stays vigilant. So I went on this journey to, to reframe things. And, you know, I think this is quite an overused term now, but to reframe my anxiety as a superpower. And that's how I then 
oh, I mean, I wrestled with it. Of course, the whole, I had the whole medical fraternity against what I was trying to put out there, even though I don't go against medication, therapy and so on. But I really had to go in deep and to really believe what I was researching, what I was feeling, what I was observing to be able to arrive at that reframing. Yeah. And of course, you know, your book, First You Make the Beast Beautiful, is all about that journey. But thinking about what you were doing as a day job, so to speak, as you're going through this journey, you were editor, as I mentioned earlier, of Cosmo magazine at just 29. Mm -hmm. Being editor is a lot of responsibility at pretty young age. How did you cope and was sort of the anxiety and bipolar a contributing factor do you think to you getting sick yeah look it was a whole range of things it was a perfect storm of factors you know I arrived at the job having never read the magazine in my life I'd never worn makeup I'd never worn a pair of high heel shoes so you know a lot of people go what on earth were you doing there and I suppose it was just like I guess a a reasonably good news journalist and anyway they threw me in the deep end and I loved it I thrived on it I was in a relationship that went toxic and you know four years into the job magazine sales were really starting to suffer you know advertising dollar was dwindling all of these factors as well as my tendency to speed up rather than slow down when I'm stressed it just heightened everything and it all kind of came together with this autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's, which I'm sure many of your listeners have either got or they know someone with it because it affects women predominantly. I think it's something like 90% of sufferers are women and it tends to kick in with A-types and and it tends to kick in with women in their sort of 20s, 30s, 40s. I think it was almost the perfect illness for someone like me because it slammed me to the road. Like I couldn't go any further. I couldn't work or walk. And it turned out it was a year where I just went down and down and down. And I got to the point where I was two weeks from heart failure, according to the specialist, when I finally went to the doctor and got help. But I reached a point where I I suppose I was suicidal. And I had a moment where I was 34, I think I was 35 by this stage. I hadn't slept for three nights. I was on the floor in fetal position. I'd been there for days on end. And I was staring into my mirrored wardrobe. And I could no longer to see myself and I knew I was ready to leave and there was this switch in my brain that just went oh hang on just one last little plan b we might want to explore here but yeah I I said well what if what if I don't leave what if instead given that I'm prepared to give it all up what if I give all of it up except for my existence and the stuff that I actually hold dear to me And what if I start this whole journey again with just literally the clothes on my back, which is what I was almost down to by the stage of, you know, not working for a year. And I got up and I went and ate peanut butter from the fridge. And seriously, from that point forward, my life shifted. And I made a commitment off the back of that, that I will never get caught up again. I will always assess each rule and each protocol and each regime before I get engaged. And I'll go, well, is this the right way to go? And it's a commitment I've stuck to. Every now and then I go off the rails and I come back again. My anxiety is the thing that steers me now. I get anxious if I'm off track. And that is my signal to go, okay, Sarah, regroup, refocus. And I generally go for a hike until I go, okay, this is where I'm off the rails. This is where I'm getting off track again. If we take back to like the turning point, eating peanut butter from the fridge, how instrumental was quitting sugar around that time? 
Mm. Well, at that stage, I hadn't embarked on that journey. So what actually happened after I, you know, demolished half that jar of peanut butter, really bizarre things started to happen. I literally the next day got a phone call from a television studio from Kerri-Anne Kennelly, as it happens, asking me to fill in for her as host of her TV show, which was ludicrous because I'd never hosted a show before. And so going from almost dead the day before to two days later hosting a national television show, I have no memory of it. My brain was a fog. Anyone with Hashimoto's will know what I mean. Wow. But from there, the MasterChef thing happened. That was a sort of a blip and I had to sort of recover from that. And eventually I moved to an army shed in the forest in Byron Bay and went, I've got to get better. I cannot keep going. I'd been told I was perimenopausal. I, you know, this is all sort of at 35 or so, and that, you know, I was very, very unwell and I'd never have children and my hair had fallen out, my nails were falling off, I was very weak. I basically started on a journey to get myself well and I sort of addressed my diet, I addressed meditation, I learned to meditate, I did a whole bunch of things. Gradually, gradually, the dial started to shift, but the thing that made the biggest difference was literally cutting sugar out of my diet. It was almost a silver bullet because it addressed my autoimmune disease. It addressed my anxiety. It addressed my energy levels. It addressed my physical health and my ability to focus, of course. I'd been blogging for a bit and I just started sharing really bad photos of food I was cooking on Twitter. I did a $100 course on how to write an ebook and I wrote an ebook about it thinking, well, if I just cover my costs for producing the book. I'll be happy anyway. It became an Amazon bestseller. Amazing. Sounds like the universe was looking out for you and throwing you lots of opportunities, I guess. Look, that's a really good way of putting it. But the way I see it is that the universe, whatever you want to call it, the flow of life, it's it's at a quantum level. It's been shown to be so. It actually responds to certain energetic movements. And if you are moving in the right direction with certitude, and resolve the world responds I was making little right moves in the right direction and life was meeting me there and that's what happens yeah and life did sort of take you in the right direction and I quit sugar became from the ebooks that you put out there it became quite a phenomenon didn't it Yeah, it was received really well. I suppose I wrote this book thinking if I can just help people because everyone was saying, oh, how did you do it? What happens? Why do you say it takes eight weeks? Why do you do this? So I just put it together in a book and put it out there and became an Amazon bestseller in the US. And then book publishers came and printed it into a print book. So I sort of did it the other way around. And that became a New York Times bestseller and another Amazon bestseller. And yeah, it just spread. It, It spread. Basically, you had an absolutely thriving business, didn't you? I think you had 23 staff. and Yeah, 23 or 25 or something at the highest point, yeah. That's a big staff to have. And then you, and you had an online course and it was all going off. And, you know, ultimately you, you, you could have carried on and made millions, not that that was why you were doing it. But then you, you actually made a decision to close it down when it was really at its peak, Mm-hmm. What did you go through to actually make that decision, which must have been really difficult? Yeah, it was super difficult in the sense that the mechanics and the human element and all of that were really hard. But of course, I back and forth on all the pros and the cons, and I got lots of advice. And I always feel that when you get lots of advice and when you go to more and more people for advice, it's generally a sign that you actually got to stop and go inwards. 
eventually I did do that and I just knew that life would steer me where it would need to go and also as I moved in the right direction I'd be met and so I just followed those signs and once again it was my anxiety if I start to get anxious around a decision I know either I've got to pay more attention or it's not the right decision and then as I started to get some flow I'd go okay we're on the right track and so that's how I did it. Sorry you know you talk about when your anxiety guides you it sort of signals that you have to look at these decisions. How do you find yourself the space to notice your anxiety? Because I think many people sort of are in anxiety and it's sort of like you're on a hamster wheel and you're not really even aware of it. Yeah, it's practice. I mean, my answer to a lot of questions to do with anxiety is literally this, sheer years on the planet. It gets easier as you get older. You get more practiced at it. You get used to the signs. You start to listen to the signs because you've got no choice but to because it's just too uncomfortable not to. But I suppose a few things that I do is meditation. It's a non-negotiable if you've got anxiety. And the other one is hiking. Yeah. So hiking gets me into the space. And I say this in my latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, that walking in nature goes at the same pace as discerning thought. And I think a lot of our ills today that we don't have the space to make these kinds of decisions like you're suggesting, you know. And so hiking, it gets us away from the distractions. You're left with your thoughts in an environment where there's awe, there's expansiveness, there's the congruence with the patternings of life. And then there's also, yes, this idea of your brain starts to operate in a way that brings about really good discerning thought. So if you want the silver bullet, it's hike. Yeah, I, and I couldn't agree more about discerning thought. And we all kind of distract ourselves and numb ourselves almost as an avoidance strategy of getting real. That's so profound. Now, speaking of your books, both First You Make the Beast Beautiful and your latest one, This One Wild and Precious Life, you know, you're incredibly open and vulnerable and generous with what you share about your personal life or your life as as a whole. How do you go through that process of what to share and what to keep private? And is it something that takes a lot of your thought or are you, did you make a decision at some point to be kind of like an open book? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a little bit of all of that, to be honest. I've been a very reserved person all of my life, um, even though I've, you know, had jobs which put me on television and all of that kind of thing. But I suppose, yeah, I did think about it very deeply. But I also know that the only stuff that's helped me is hearing other people's story. And I felt an obligation just to go first. That's what I decided to frame it as. You know, why would I share X, Y, Z as opposed to this? Oh, if it serves people by me going first and going to that deep, vulnerable spot and going, hey, hey, this is how we could do this thing, then I do it. My publisher in both of those books had to sort of speak with the team, go to the editors and go, should we protect Sarah here? And I only found this out later. One of them was to do well, with um, suicide ideation and the other was to do with miscarriage and abortion. Two topics that don't get brought up nearly enough at dinner table (laughs) conversations. And, yeah, they made the decision that I was comfortable enough and that I was solid enough in myself to be able to hold it on behalf of the readers. Yeah, I have no regrets going there. With, for instance, the abortion part of the book, 
and even as I say it, I'm acutely aware that there'd be a lot of people freezing a little even when I say it because we just don't discuss it enough. But as you would know, we talk about the fact that we've all got to talk about this more. It's an experience so many women go through, they contemplate, they wrestle with, they do it on their own. We should be talking about it more. Then we talk about how people with a platform, i.e., a book publishing deal, um, should be talking about these things more. And here I was writing a book about radical honesty as we face our existential crisis and what, I'm not going to go first, I'm not going to discuss this when the world says this is what we need. So I viewed it as a responsibility and that got me through the awkwardness and the trickiness of it all. I want to talk about your latest book, One Wild and Precious Life, and you talked about the fact that the climate crisis is, you know, the most existential threat facing us at the moment. Towards the end of the book, you really get into how can we make a difference, which I think is really important because, as you say, it's all about individuals. How would you summarise, if our listeners could do anything throughout their sort of day practically to make a difference what would you ask them to do yeah okay so in terms of stuff that will shift the dial because that's what we should be worrying about there's a two-pronged approach we need to actually agitate corporates and government to make the big decisions that will shift money and shift policy you've got to be engaged with your local MP. I'm sorry that that's where everything sits. So wherever you are in the world where there's an election coming up, pay attention and, you know, share thoughts in and around that. But I would say that individual action is also important because that's what gets government and industry attention. And what I will say to this, if for anyone listening who feels like, oh, God, what's the point? I'm only one person amidst, you know, what, 9 billion or 8 billion or whatever it is these days. What I would say is that the, the studies show that you only have to have 3.5% of any population, a city, a town, a school, whatever it is, who engage in peaceful protest for change to come about. So once you get 3.5%, change happens in every single case. And the study was done from, I think, 1904 to 2014, very long period of time. So I call it the 3.5% figure of hope. So our small actions can make a difference. So if you want to know tangible stuff at home, food waste. Food waste is the third biggest emitter of carbon emissions, far more than transport, a whole range of things. I didn't know that. Yeah, and consumers, it's not, it's not the supermarkets, it's not the farmers, it's the consumers that are the biggest wasters of food. So, you know, we can get all worried about eating, you know, less meat, which we should, and do we do this or that? Do we go vegan? Do we do this? And I'm like, you know what, if you want to have, you know, this cut through, just stop food waste. And I mean all food waste. Stop peeling vegetables that don't need to be peeled. Do not throw a single scrap of food out. Do not go to the supermarket until you have, you know, done the full fridge surprise dinner of odds and ends. And then you go, you know. So so that's the first thing you can do. The next thing I would say, and this is something that I'm aware of, people are not aware of, and that is, Gas is highly problematic. It produces methane, which in a two-decade period is 80 times more toxic than CO2. So the big campaign you'll see around the world now is to electrify everything. And I know that a lot of us seem to think that gas is natural, electricity is dirty, particularly in Australia. 
But as we transition to cleaner energy, which we will have to as an economic reality, that is the way we've got to go. So if you're renovating a house, if you're making any upgrade in in your purchasing, make sure it's electric. And it's the same with cars. If you're upgrading to a car, it's mandatory that it's electric. That is the future. It's where everything's going. So that would be two. And then the third thing I would say is walk. More emissions are created for car trips under 10 kilometres than anything else. So as a consumer, that's where we do a lot of our unnecessary trips. So walk, ride a bike, catch a bus for those small trips, get into the habit of it. That will also shift the dial. Love it. Well, it's super practical. I mean, it might sound a bit confronting for some people because it probably would mean, you know, fairly large changes in their lifestyle. How do you actually get people across the line in terms of changing their behaviours? Yeah, well, that's what I've dedicated my entire life to is trying to make this movement sexy. And that's the only way that humans change. You've got to make what we're doing over here kind of cooler and more appealing, more charming than the status quo. And so there's no point talking CO2 emissions, although I know I just did, or bludgeoning people with stuff. You've just got to make it look cooler and more fun and more freedom creating. I try to be the message that, you know, I'm wanting to spread. I think the other thing is I try to just tell people to start where you are. If you are a single mum with two kids and you're struggling, just start where you are. Like start by addressing food waste at school canteen if you happen to be on the canteen committee or something. It doesn't have to be a massive move. Like Greta Thunberg, she just was one kid sitting with a cardboard sign outside Swedish Parliament only a couple of years ago. Charm begets charm. Action begets charm. Action begets action. And so these small things that we do, they do count because it spreads. And I guess, you know, your pandemic disrupted live national tour of Australia, the, you know, this one wild and precious <laughs> life tour is very much all about kind of getting people more passionate and having that connection to convince us all that there are things we all can and should be doing. With the pandemic, it's obviously delayed the tour. How else has COVID impacted you? Because you are famous for your nomadic travel with one bag for eight years at a time lifestyle. How have, how have you felt being restricted? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've lived the longest I've ever lived in one spot since I left home at 17 uh, now for three years, an apartment, a rental apartment here in Bondi in Sydney. And three years feels like an eternity. I know some people would be going, oh, really? But yeah, I'm grateful. I've pivoted my thinking. I find it quite a fun sport just to go with what is served our way. I see it as almost a resilience building you know, activity. So yeah, look, I've, I've had the dates shifted and the dates now for the tour are August, September, and I'm just going to ride with it. If it's meant to happen, it'll happen. But yeah, my movement is restricted, but I then find movement within close confines. You know, I'm finding beauty in the ocean across the road. I'm very lucky to have that there. And having relationships with people that maybe I wouldn't have had relationships with online, you know, via Instagram. I'm doing lots of Instagram lives with random people from around the world who I've connected with over the last couple of years. And then I also decided to foster children. So when I decided that I was not going to pursue that, you know, having a child of my own journey, I big part of it was I figured I was better put to use um, supporting kids that, 
needed a parent, you know. And so I've been fostering Indigenous children for three years and I've got an awesome teenager living with me at the moment who will be with me for, for, well, as long as she needs to be with me, as long as she wants to be with me. That has become more meaningful than I could ever have imagined. So, again, you make decisions, you move in a certain direction, life comes and meets you and you get surprised and that's, that's how life goes. Yeah, that's great to hear. And you talked about resilience. I think a lot of people are doing it tough during the pandemic in particular, but what are one or two things we can all do to kind of build our resilience and take ourselves to our edges and thresholds more often? Well, oh, look, there's a whole range of things I could say to that. Hiking. <laughs> Have I mentioned hiking? Hiking can actually, is a really great physical manifestation of everything you've just said there, going to your edge, building resilience. But I would say the things that actually work the best are actually what I call soul nerding. So I think studying what people before us have done to cope in pandemics and crises is one of the most beautiful things you can do. And um, it's generally the best writers who've gone down to the depths as a result of a crisis who have written some of the best literature throughout history. So I do a fair bit of soul nerding to get perspective, you know, to sort of get a bit of a grip of myself. I also stay longer with a problem. And this is something that I've learned with my own work, but also from observing the work of artists, creatives and so on. You know, I think it was Albert Einstein said, I'm not smarter than anyone else. I think he's been very, very humble there. But he said, I'm not any smarter than anyone else. I can just stay with a problem longer. And it's one of my favourite quotes, actually. I think Ira Glass, who started up that podcast, This American Life, he said, anything any good um, should take a long time. And I've come to realise that. So resilience is often about just staying longer, staying longer, staying longer. We're very impatient. We're a culture that is used to having an answer straight away. We don't sit in uncertainty or unknowingness. And so we've become extremely fragile. You know, we can Google everything. You know, we get instant answers. And if something's not perfect, we're meant to fix it straight away. And then we, we complain like a Karen to the manager if, it's, if we don't have a fix straight away. And that has left us extremely fragile. And, you know, of course, life is uncertain. It is unpredictable. You do have to wait for things. So, you know, I think, yeah, staying longer with the problem is a really good practice. Sarah, we're coming towards the end of our time together, which, I, you know, I really feel we could talk for hours and hours. But one of the questions that we always ask our guests is if you went back in time to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Oh, gosh, that's a great one. Because usually you get asked at 16. But at 30, I would say remain vigilant, focus on keeping up your strength and your health and keep practicing gentleness. Oh, I love that. What does practicing gentleness mean to you? Uh, again, it's a choice. Once you make the choice, it becomes your mindset, I think. That's for me anyway. So it's not like I, and I'm cerebral, so some people need to do active things. I'm cerebral. If I think the thought, it becomes. It's, for instance, when you do your yoga practice and the teacher says, uh, hold a thought in your heart for the duration of this class or whatever it is. And that's what I'll commit to, gentleness. And then when I walk, I try to be gentle. When I'm walking to go and meet friends for a drink, as I'm walking there, I go, okay, be gentle tonight. Gentle is taking a, is doing the same thing, the same certitude, the same vigilance, the same deliberateness, but you back off. You do it in a sweeter manner. 
It's not either or, and that's my big framework. You don't have to choose. You can do both. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, to achieve what you have done, in some ways you are a possessed bull at a gate because that's what it takes to achieve what you've achieved. So I totally understand that the flip side of that is then backing off and just going with it. Yeah, Making my study in my life a study in both work and love. I've got to do both. Sarah, thank you for this totally wonderful conversation we've loved it my pleasure how can our listeners find out more about you um your books your book tour well the easiest spot would probably be sarahwilson.com everything's on that homepage. so let's keep it elegant sarahwilson.com fantastic well we will make sure that we put that at plus all your social handles because i know you're very active on instagram um we'll put that all on our show notes page so thank you again really really wonderful to speak to you and we applaud you for what you're doing we're right behind you best of luck on on the book tour and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you out there and thank you for the fearless work that you do because it is brave yeah oh thank you thank you to both of you Claire and Greta for giving me time it's our pleasure wow what a conversation I just love how Sarah ended there by talking about her life being a study of work and love. It's so simple and yet so powerful as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's just so much to ponder. Sarah's certainly motivating me to question more about my lifestyle and its impact. Yeah. I just love how she avoids going with the status quo and questions things that the rest of us take for granted. You know, and she's clearly such an independent and thorough thinker about some of the biggest issues and also about things like her anxiety and bipolar, learning to see them as assets and viewing her anxiety as a warning signal that she's not on quite the right path. Yeah, totally. I really love that 3.5% number Sarah shared. You know, it is really motivating that we only need 3.5% of the population to really care about an issue and participate in some way. I think that's very motivating to move for change and it makes change for the good of our planet just seem more achievable yeah i agree and and you know to be honest we just don't have a choice do we so let's all think about food waste tonight and in the next few days and see what we can do to reduce our own impact there for starters yeah that's a good start and if you're listening in australia then don't forget to check out sarah's website for information on her forthcoming live tour we'll share a link on our show notes page at don'tstopusnow.co well that's this episode done and dusted we hope you enjoyed this one as much as we did yes see you next week be brave make a difference and ciao for now Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 